Hi, everybody, and welcome to Marketplace Jungle, where we explore the world of marketplaces beyond Amazon. Brought to you by eChameleon, I'm your host, Jesse Ragg. Ken Klein is founder and CEO at VHC Brands from Kansas, USA. Traditionally a wholesale business selling to all of the major names in the US, Ken saw the opportunities of D2C before it was trending and diversified his business across marketplaces, both B2B and B2C, before setting up a new business arm to really leverage the direct consumer opportunity. In this episode, expect to learn how a single source of truth for product data can help scale your business, how to sell D2C without upsetting your B2B customers, the difference a smooth logistics operation makes, and much more. Ken, thank you so much for joining on Marketplace Jungle. Thank you for having me. Ken, on this podcast, we like to talk about marketplaces beyond Amazon, and you've got a fantastic story you've you've built up what began as a wholesale business and you've te- you've transitioned it into not just a marketplace business but a, a pretty well-rounded b2c business where you're you're really leveraging as far as i can tell three really strong business models there being the traditional wholesale and b2b uh, sorry b2c via marketplaces and and now also more recently b2c via your own website you've done each of these in as far as i can tell from the outside very methodical very logical ways that are, for me are very logical, but I think for a lot of sellers are quite challenging and perhaps don't come as intuitively. And so what I'd love to try and do today is pick your brains on what those steps were that you took to become successful in each of these business areas. Maybe see if that, see if we can generalize them a little bit for listeners who are maybe selling in different categories or maybe that are in different parts of the world to you. But before we jump into the nitty gritty of it, Maybe you can tell me a little bit about who you are, introduce your business to us and, and tell us how you got started on this journey. Sure. And it's a great topic. And, and, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. And the, the issue of, you know, there's a, there's an entire world beyond Amazon that is extremely important for commerce. And then we're talking about e-commerce. So, I, I mean, this is going to be a great discussion in terms of like how we planned our business. Uh, yeah, we literally started it on the kitchen table in my parents' house. And, uh, we were like, what are we going to do? Uh, and so we, we, uh, we had some ideas, uh, to be, um, in retail and, uh, this goes back to the nineties and, um, my parents were retired. Uh, they retired young from my dad was a fortune 500 executive back when that mattered. Um, and so he retired pretty young and was kind of bored. So we said, well, let's, let's, let's sort of start being in retail. And we, we liked home textiles and that's the business we're still in. So we're, we're still in the home, which when you talk about home textiles, that can be window treatment made of cotton or other material, or it could be a top of bed item, or it can be a pillow that goes on your couch. It can be a throw. It can be a stocking for Christmas. So that's the kind of business that we traffic in and make money off of. So, uh, but the journey started back in the nineties and, uh, we started as a company that wanted to, uh, basically make a market out of taking a product that was not available to small retailers in the U S think of boutiques on main street or what you call high street in your, in, in, in UK or whatever. So, uh, they didn't have the product available to them. Um, if it was a Chinese company or an Indian company or whatever that would only sell to us mass scaled retailers. 
So we, we made a business model out of taking excess product and then remarketing it downstream to buyers that were not qualified to buy it on the front end. Uh, so that was a really weird, unique model and it was pretty successful. Um, and, uh, there's a whole talk around how that's not e-com related. So I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but what, what happened is as we grew the business successfully, there wasn't enough product left over to go around. So you can only scale so far with secondary market product. Uh, and if every retailer in the U S was having a great year, there wouldn't be that much product left over. So that was a problem. So we switched to importing and having our own label and saying, well, we've got a ready, we've got a ready buyer base that we think we can scale, which is small retail in the U S that needs access to the product. Uh, but we need to start importing our own product, uh, so that we can continue to scale the business. So we, we did that. We successfully jumped over to starting with China and then we added India and then we, we ultimately opened offices in India and China. And then we ultimately, for a lot of reasons, we've moved out of China and we're only in India now. Um, so the, that, that journey has always been business to business. And now what people call business to business to consumer, if it's e-commerce, because, you know, there's a, a dropship model component for many companies that are brands like us, but they're wholesale brands. So we were known to retailers and yeah, some end users, but mainly, you know, we were known to retailers. Um, and what we found is that as we scale, we started adding some bigger retailers, some mass retailers, some real household names in the U S well, the challenge there is that, uh, first of all, it's very competitive and certain. And secondly, what we found is that in a lot of cases, there's a cap on our ability to grow because that buyer only wants to deal with some vendors or so many vendors or whatever. So the, the nice thing about e-com is, and we didn't really start an e-commerce. We started our website, our wholesale website back in around 2003. And we started our, I mean, we, we really started with some scaled wholesale e-commerce players around 2009. So go back way back to like, uh, the beginning of Wayfair before it was called Wayfair, uh, go back to Groupon. There's some old names, you know, back in, but way back in the day, but we were selling to all levels of different kinds of traditional retailers in the U S. Um, we found that that was kind of putting a cap on us in terms of we weren't responsible for our own journey. So maybe the buyer really liked you and maybe that buyer would buy two or three containers a year or buy a lot of product. And then that buyer gets, they move to a new company or the boss changes or their, their profile of purchasing changes. And you have to start that journey all over again, just to get back to where you've had developed, worked really hard to get over years. Right? So the, the cool thing about e-com is that you can be responsible for your own journey. So that's the thing. And that's why this ties into being, I, I'm it's funny because one of the most recent marketplaces we've added is Amazon, whereas we have a longer history with the closed loop marketplaces like the Wayfarers and the Overstocks and whoever, because that was a, that was much more analogous to our DNA. Like you can actually talk to a category manager at Wayfair and have a conversation with some relative level of knowledge, like you're talking to a traditional scale buyer that's responsible for your category. Right. Does that, so does that make sense? Okay. So for us, I, you can jump in whenever you want. So for us, those were normal conversations, right? But I mean, on the front end, you know, these people say strange things when you're a wholesaler, first of all, I'm not going to buy anything. I'm only going to, I only want it listed and I'm only going to drop ship it. 
is I'm not going to take any bulk orders. So if you're used to, if you're used to your model of you, you take a buyer to dinner and you get a container order and it's a bulk order, you know, you're, you're sitting here going, wait a minute, I'm taking all the risk and you're not doing anything, but they, they actually are performing a great service for the wholesale company, which is trying to build massive scale. And that's something that was, is relatively new. And I think there's a whole conversation around the scale of scale because, you know, very storied retailers in the U.S. that have been around 100, 120 years, the amount of volume that they do, like a Macy's or a JCPenney's, is kind of a rounding error for Amazon on any given day of the week, which is kind of, you know, scary. But that's also true of other e-commerce. So I think that's the missing piece that, like, people look at when, and I just was on a conference call with 30 or 40 CEO founders yesterday, all e-commerce. There was a whole conversation around go Amazon or go home. And I'm, I'm sitting here going, this is ludicrous. I mean, I'm, I, I came to Amazon as the latest of the marketplaces and we built a whole business around all the other marketplaces. So those always get me excited. And that's why that's a whole conversation we can have. So, yeah. So that was kind of our journey. We, and so we, we, we kind of were comparing scaled traditional retail in the U S like think like a JCPenney's or a Cracker Barrel, or you go on down the list. There's lots, there's a lot of retailers that have gone bankrupt in the past five to 10 years too. A lot of who were great clients and they don't exist anymore. But, uh, so, so when you talk about a Wayfair or an Overstock and they had some heady growth back in those days and they've gotten a lot bigger, but back in the days, you know, this huge growth leaps, you know, that sounded like the same as a traditional scale retailer but in a completely new universe, which was e-commerce. So that's kind of how we came to this. Uh, and now we're on, you know, a lots of, lots of marketplaces, but that's, that's sort of the journey. I hope I touched on all the important points for you. I don't know if I did. Cause no, you, you really did. There's, there's a million questions spinning at the moment. The, I think the first one that's at the forefront of my mind, if you don't mind sharing 30 years, almost since, uh, 30 years, almost into the journey. Can you tell me a little bit about the distribution of revenue from these three business, three core business models? Yeah. Marketplaces, own e-commerce and, uh, or own B2C e-commerce and the more traditional wholesale? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So yeah, they're, they're very different segments. Um, and so, uh, we still do about, it's, it's only about 20% of our volume now is traditional retailer where they, they come to us and they place a wholesale order and we ship it in bulk and then they're responsible for their store or stores. So, but, and some of those are everything from a store on main street or what you call high street, uh, to, uh, someone who has a massive catalog company that does, you know, 400 billion in revenue or whatever to, uh, someone who has a chain store, you know, 20 stores, 50 stores, whatever. So that, that model is still there, but it's only about 20% of our business. Of which a good chunk of that, my guess would be they're pushing to e-com. Like it's not on store shelf. It's actually has an e-com component that's highly relevant, but we don't get into that because, you know, we just see the bulk order. Um, so that's about 20%. Then about, uh, up until January, when we spun off the direct to consumer, the pure direct to consumer play, we just spun off three weeks ago after a three or four year journey, that was about. 35% of our volume. So, uh, 
and that's up from like a hundred thousand bucks in 2018 to like it massively scaled several million dollars through COVID. So as a, so that was that's when we started Amazon and eBay and Walmart, the direct to consumer channels. So that was about 35% of our revenue up until about three weeks ago. And now we spun that off as a separate entity. And then the, the core piece of the business, as far as like volume of revenue is definitely closed marketplaces, invitation only marketplaces that are B2B to C or what's traditionally called wholesale or traditionally called B2B, right? There's different phrases. So people, depending on how old you are, you get confused. So wholesale and B2B mean the same thing and it doesn't mean retail and B2B to C means wholesale, but you do, you do their drop shipping for them or whatever, you know, deal. So, uh, I like to point that out because people get confused sometimes. So that, that's the, the that's the remaining, what, 60% or 55, whatever. So within that niche, it, it, that's our wheelhouse that we've traditionally built the business around that we've transferred at scale to e-com, so to speak. And I use the phrase that I don't know if it makes sense to you, Jesse, but the reason I call these closed marketplaces as opposed to open marketplaces is because fair.com has to invite you to be a, you know, a vendor, uh, home Depot has to invite you to be a vendor. Uh, Wayfair has to invite you to be a vendor. That's very different than your experience as a B2C play or D2C play where you go on Amazon and you put stuff up there. And as long as you're not violating their rules, you know, you, they just let you, you know, do your thing and they don't really care. Just to add a little bit of additional confusion to the mix, because another factor that quite often comes, comes in here, and this comes often from the Amazon world more often than not is the terminology of one P versus third, uh, versus three P. So mm. one, third party, first party, sure. third party, sorry, first party being what you're referring to as a closed marketplace, third party being kind of a free for all, anyone can open an account and start selling there. But another level on top of that, again, is, and I don't even know how you'd categorize these, but here in Europe, particularly, there's quite a few marketplaces where for all intents and purposes, it's a third party marketplace, but from a legal perspective, it is actually a first party marketplace because from the consumer perspective, the marketplace is the seller of record. And at right. the moment that that transaction takes place on the marketplace, another transaction takes place whereby the marketplace purchases the product from you, the seller. And you then have to, as you say, B2B to C, you then have to effectively drop ship or send the parcel to the consumer. Hopefully you're not using FBA and the consumer's then getting it. This is one of the reasons why most marketplaces in Europe don't allow FBA because they don't want a prime box showing up when right. it's supposedly sold by one of Amazon's competitors or by a market company that considers itself a competitor of Amazon. It can be very tricky as a business to understand who am I actually working with here? Who's, is this a marketplace? Cause you can't just Google marketplaces in my category, right? There's not really a good list. And as you say, it's hard to define these things. Is it a marketplace? I mean. You know, theoretically, Booking.com and TripAdvisor are e-commerce marketplaces. Are marketplaces, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, but that's not yeah. relevant for a, a typical uh, e-commerce seller that's just looking for another model, another arm that they can add to their business. I th that breakdown is 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 really helpful. It's also very interesting to hear that you spun off that new entity for tackling 
the Amazon side of the business. That's something that even some of the really big guys are doing. Some of the, you know, the AB InBev was an example that came up on a yes. podcast recently where they spun off their own kind of daughter company specifically designed to handle the marketplace side of things or the e-commerce side of things because otherwise you just get bogged down in red tape. You know, you kind of need these things to have a have a breath of to have a life of their own, I guess you'd say, and, and to just kind of reinvest the money that's coming back in through this arm, back into this business and let it grow on its own and you know, yes. trust the people that are there to do what they need to do and give them the resources that they need to do to do that. Um, I'm curious, so what was it that happened? Let me rephrase. In 2020, when COVID hit, a lot of bigger brands looked at e-commerce and specifically at marketplaces as an opportunity to, whether it was for cost-saving methods or for any other number of reasons, they started looking at marketplaces as an opportunity to go direct to consumer, in many cases, for the first time. You're right. way ahead of the curve here. You know, we talked before we pressed record about how you were already starting to create remote-first teams before COVID happened. So that was another area where you were ahead of the curve. But going D to C and adding that and completely changing your business model. How did that happen? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, it looks like really smart on the backside. And sometimes, I mean, it, I, I was playing Monopoly with my youngest uh, child and my wife last night. And so sometimes funny things happen. And I mean, he absolutely stomped me in Monopoly last night. But um, so the world is not always like as planned as like, you know, you think it is. Uh, and I have three teenagers. And so that's a lot of fun in the house. Um, and so my youngest is, is 13. He'll be 14 next month. Uh, but, uh, so we were playing Monopoly and he whipped me pretty good, which doesn't always happen. But so you, you have a plan in place and your plan doesn't always like come to fruition is the reason I brought that up. So what happened on Amazon very interestingly is, uh, it's, it was a very interesting Amazon journey. First of all, uh, we, we had sellers coming to us. As when, you know, Amazon didn't have a marketplace like at the beginning, it, it, it added marketplace functionality. And then the marketplace functionality has become, you know, 50 to 55% of revenue. And it's a five or $600 billion behemoth now, but that wasn't true 15 years ago. And it wasn't true. It didn't even exist 20 years ago, you know? So initially for Amazon marketplace, uh, you know, we had people come to us that were niche retailers, very small and said, you know, we think we can make a go at this. We have a store, but we think this Amazon thing's pretty interesting. And our response as a wholesale company was, well, good for you. I mean, we don't care what you do. You know, that's your, we're, we don't do that business. Uh, we're not in direct to consumer. We didn't call it that at the time, but you know, we basically aren't competing with our 3000 plus retailers, by the way. Um, it's just not our wheelhouse. So we had sellers starting to go on Amazon and then they started scaling. Then we started working with Amazon directly, which is one piece. So Amazon said, Hey, we're seeing some good trending here. Why don't you just work with us without going into the, like the nitty gritty that, that was a, that was a seven figure business that turned out to be a nightmare. Um, Amazon was not a great partner at all. And so, uh, that was, that was a mess. So we had buyers, third-party buyers, uh, doing the Amazon work and learning how to be experts on Amazon somewhat at scale. And then we had Amazon come in at scale immediately and just started taking off. 
but we also had the issue of kind of noise versus signal. So what we saw on Amazon was the issue of, you know, we're selling to these people that are selling on Amazon, some of whom are doing a great job, some of whom are doing a terrible job. And then you've got Amazon. And then we started talking to the spree tails of the world and start, you know, the avalanches and the spree tails, like, you know, Hey, this product showed up on our radar because it, it looks like, you know, we could take you from this level to this level, whatever. So those conversations started happening and we started doing some business that way. Well, what happens, Jesse, is this is a lot of noise happening over one marketplace. And this, this started to get further and further from our general level of expertise running a business of how do you navigate, uh, this, you know, a plethora of users and potential users of your product on what is called one marketplace, but essentially depending on who that, who that buyer is reselling on Amazon, they are either great or mediocre or terrible, or you should never should have done it or whatever. So we came, we came through all this journey over about a four or five year period. And then we decided in 2019, let's just do this ourselves. So the way we came to direct to consumer was that not that we thought we would be better but that we wanted to totally clean it up, right? And so we weren't getting, depending on the product, the listing was either terrible or great. Depending on if Amazon bought it, the volume was either great or didn't exist or somewhere in between, right? So it was, it was really this all over the board kind of thing that was really got to start to being kind of a giant headache. So we said, well, let's just, let's just clean this up and just eventually let's just do it all ourselves as direct to consumer. So that decision was made in 2019, which turned out to look super genius about four months later, <laughs> you know, come along March and April, 2020. So li literally, you know, we're sitting here we're like, okay, we're, we were doing segments. So our, we had this, we had this benchmark. Okay. We're doing seven figures with Amazon low seven figures. So let's make sure that at the least we're going to achieve that metric, right? We're not going to go backwards on Amazon selling ourselves. And then let's get rid of all these small sellers and some of them large, and then let's clean that up. And then here's our metric. And then COVID hit and we weren't even doing any advertising. We were, I mean, it wasn't even like, we weren't even like, uh, we were baby steps. So then what happened is it just started rapidly shooting North on P and L. Uh, well then we said, you know, we really don't know what we're doing like at all. Not only did we, we didn't know what we were doing like, you know, 12 months prior. And there's a steep learning curve. Now we really don't know what we're doing, not on shipping and all that's all fine. But in terms of managing returns, managing, you know, your, your listing got dropped because you it's wrong and you don't know why your listing's wrong, all of this crap. So then we started working with agencies and there's a whole discussion around that. I I'm, I'm kind of flip of the coin there. Uh, so that was our direct to consumer play on Amazon. Same thing on eBay though. And, and it worked out great on eBay. Same thing on Walmart. Uh, although we pulled off and we're going back to Walmart, but that was, that was how that started was we think we can clean this up as a, because we feel like we've made a mess and we've missed the opportunity, but we, Jesse, this, I know this is, this sounds totally Neanderthal to probably a lot of your listeners. The fact is we're, we're over here paying attention to Wayfair and everyone else, because that's where all volume was, you know, and we thought, well, I mean, whatever, you know? And so, um. So that's a whole conversation. So that's how the direct to consumer thing got started. And then we, we, we were, we figured out between 2020, 2021, 2022, between three different agencies at scale, not just like not bit player. I'm talking a list 
top notch that represent major brands on Amazon. We just couldn't move the dial and it just was a, it just wasn't any good for us. Um, I mean, somewhat we could. So, but not really, it wasn't really our wheelhouse. We also felt like the advertising was out of control, like just throwing everything at the wall, like spaghetti. Let's get a really good grip on that. Uh, the returns were out of control for whatever reason. So these are all issues that if you're not careful, you're, you're not in business anymore. And I'll say something that's kind of a, my thing, but it's a Dave Ramsey thing. If you know who you're not in business anymore, now you're in busyness. Okay. Cause all I'm doing is fighting fires and playing whack-a-mole and that gets old, right? Like, but the other thing on P and L was that the D to C play, and this is something at scale. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I talk to a lot of people. It's very interesting for major brands and I can only speak to the U S but there's a common thread in the U S and it's a common podcast topic that direct to consumer is a P and L destroying exercise. If, if you're not careful and you don't really know what you're doing with advertising and free freight and second day delivery, it'll, you're going to get your butt handed to you because you're so used to shipping big boxes to big retailers or distribution centers. And you don't, you're not responsible for the advertising. You're not responsible for the returns. You're not responsible for the customer service. None of that is your problem. And all of a sudden you jump up and say, well, I can be direct to consumer too. And you're not prepared for those things. It's a nightmare. So, uh, we said, look, there's a lot here as far as the money, obviously. There, a lot of brands are like, I'm a pure play, I'm a direct consumer, whatever. We thought, well, we've got this nugget that's that's performing on top line, but it's not great for PL. And it's it's very different PL. It's fundamentally a different PL, a profit and loss statement, than a wholesale scale distributor play. So that was the impetus behind, you know what, let's spin that off to have different equity involved. I'm an equity holder, but I'm not running the ship anymore. Thank God. So I'm not in all those advertising meetings. I'm not in all those branding meetings. I'm not, I mean, my agenda has completely changed going forward for 2023, but we're a very strong wholesale supplier of that entity, just like we are for Overstock, Wayfair, whoever. So that's, that was a huge mouthful. I hope that even made sense. That, that, that was, that was really valuable information and particularly I'm curious because we've talked a lot about the, the switch from B to C, excuse me, from wholesale to B to C or D to C. It's a trend that we're seeing here in Europe. And I think also in the U S and also in Australia and New Zealand as, as well is a growing number of B2B marketplaces, which for a lot of marketplace first or traditional D to C brands where they began as like a plucky startup selling socks from their parents garage or whatever it might've been. Um, and they've grown, a, they've grown that into a business. They're now looking at, they're in the reverse position of where you were and they're looking at B2B as an opportunity to sell not one, but a thousand items at once and to not have to print off a thousand invoices a month, but one invoice a month. Right. And I'm curious. I do want to come back to your marketplace or to your business in a moment, but on this topic, do you have any tips or advice that you could share 
having gone through the opposite process of transitioning from B2B to B2C, and now kind of back again, do you have any tips that you could share to a business in that position that's looking at B2B for the first time? Yeah. And, and it's a great topic. It's a great question. And so one of the things is, you know, I I've talked, this isn't the first time this has come up in just conversation, whether it's other entrepreneurs looking to that other revenue source, like the, you know, very common, it's the D to C and they feel like they've got a handle on that, but they started getting a request for wholesale or whatever. First of all, my for my first piece of advice, and if this is talking down to anyone, my sincere apologies on the front end, but B2B is way more than, okay, here's the wholesale price list. Call me if you need anything. If, if, if Amazon or other marketplaces take the customer very seriously, you have to think about your customer as being that category manager or buyer for your product at wholesale. You have to take that very seriously as opposed to your mindset has always been taking the end user seriously and your email list to the end user and your tickle list and your, your Instagram page, you're taking all that very seriously for the actual true end user. If you take that seriously, take the wholesale buyer seriously. They have very specific needs. They have very specific opportunities. They are bringing something to the table, uh, that you're not doing. They have a, they have their own customer base that they're trying to curate, cater to, and scale. So listen to re really not just have a price list and say, I can also do wholesale. And by the way, I'd love to have a big order. Like that's, it, it's really engaging them and asking them, okay, what is it going to take to win for your end user that makes you look really good as the buyer? What's it going to make to take your marketplace, differentiate and stand out and look great? Because like from my perspective, I can't speak for anyone else, but we have those conversations and we literally tell, we literally tell the category manager or the marketplace, we want to be a solid partner for you. We don't just want to be a listing. We want to, we want to dig deep in here. We want to really make this work. We believe in what you're doing. And the reason Jesse is because you take a company like homedepot.com, which is becoming a marketplace, you know, they sell, they sell home, like home improvement. But they're adding ancillary categories. We sell home decor, home, home decor, home makes sense. Okay. Well, you can say, well, they're not Amazon. They're not, they're not 250 billion of, of marketplace. No, they're, they're merely 20 billion. Come on. 20 billion is a lot of money. I mean, so again, and don't have a conversation about Walmart and Amazon. Shut up. Have a conversation about them. You're on a date and that date only wants to talk about themselves. And if they only want to talk about themselves and you just want to talk about them, you're going to be a great partner. Tell me more about you. That's really how the conversations need to go. But I think a really, another really interesting difference there that perhaps a lot of businesses that are in this position might not, they might not be immediately obvious because as you say, it's all about the relationships, but it, there's also the motivation behind that in that they're used to selling to somebody who's actually going to use the product. They probably in this case have to acknowledge that this buyer from Home Depot or wherever else might not actually care about the product. They're just looking for a solution to the problem of how do I look good to my boss? Yes. And yeah. that's a very different sales pitch. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And I agree. And let me elaborate on that. Uh, because what happens is like, for example, and I'll just use Home Depot. All right. So Home Depot is, you know, they're, they, they've been told the e-com and I'm, I'm sort of making this up, but this is, this is a generalized truth that this conversation we've had, I don't know how many times there's been a big corporate meeting and somebody way upstairs has said, go e-commerce because we're going to get behind if we don't be great at e-commerce and it's going to suck. And so go find, so therefore, and now, we, and now the new shiny object in the room is a uh, marketplace and advertising platform, right? So, oh my gosh, incremental revenue. Vendors are going to pay for advertising. How cool is that? And then number two is if we don't have a marketplace, then we're going to look like a not, we're not going to survive. So go find vendors. Well, what happens is finding vendors is one thing, finding and filling in the digital shelf is one thing, but then curating it so that you don't have this massive lapse in the experience of the end user is another thing. By that, I mean, you may have a great customer experience in store. But if you've got a terrible experience because your vendors online all ship really slow, they have terrible customer service, the product packaging is bad, the product itself is bad, you, you, that's not just a siloed experience. That buyer, that end user now thinks of the whole retailer as not that great. So that's why Target is so hung up on in the US and Target's, you know, big. Uh, that's why they're so hung up on you can be on the marketplace, but there's, it's, it's a lot of more strict rules. And so to fill in the blank for that buyer, to your point is going to be something like how fast do you ship? In our case, we ship within four hours. Um, have you polished the digital shelf? Yes. This is what we do with all our listings. Do you check all the blanks? Yes. We have nine pictures and one video for every single SKU, you know, blah, blah, blah. Do you answer questions quickly? Yeah. All our customer service questions are answered within 30 minutes, even on weekends. So you fill in the blanks like that. And then also you say, also, I've got a roster of 3,500 SKUs, all of which meet this service model of excellence. So you have operational excellence. What you're selling, Jesse, really is operational excellence that comes in the form of a product. It's a physical product with all this op operational excellence that has to back it up. So that's the sales pitch to the buyer, to your point, which is operational excellence is a very different sales pitch to someone that found you on Instagram click through, went to the website, used the coupon and bought one. They don't, they're not thinking about operational excellence at all. They're just thinking about that might look cool in my house. So obviously they're happy if it arrives next day and the, there's someone yeah. there who answer their questions quickly, but that's a, an individual person and their experience is important, but there's going to be another 10 buyers that week who would override a negative experience that that one buyer might have had. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas you get one shot with this person from Home Depot. Yeah. And, and one shot, and that's such a great point. And, you know, let me give you another interesting example, right? When there's, there's a marketplace that's B2B at scale in the U S called fair.com. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And fair.com is the virtual marketplace replacing physical trade shows and physical showrooms for traditional wholesale in gift and home decor and similar. So they were founded in like 2017 in San Francisco with this idea. So right off the bat, because we're constantly looking for these things, I shot them an email, phone call, whatever. Immediately, they had a team of like, I don't know, 15 people. Your product's terrible. It's never going to work for us. Like, I mean, right off the bat, this, this like slap, you know, no. Well, come along two years ago or a year and a half ago, 
get this call from this very senior guy. Hey, we've been researching you guys, and this looks like a fantastic product for us. Well, I mean, we got turned down four years ago or five years, whatever. So that's the other key thing is not that I got turned down and then they said, you're the best thing since sliced bread in the category. Like they, they changed their tune. The reason they, it, it's not that, you know, they missed the boat or whatever, but the reason I brought that up is you can get turned down by a marketplace and then things can change and you need to pay attention to that because it's classic sales. You didn't get turned down five or six times. You only got turned down once. Yeah. It's, and so you, it's sales 101. It's not, it's not, yes. no, it's not yet. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. So, so you just have to pay attention to things like that to go, well, and, and we do great volume on fair, you know, selling B2B, which is to niche retailers. I mean, that's the whole point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it's exciting. I, I love stuff like that. I love stories like that. And that's my version of when Shopify says, you know, arm the rebels, like the fair.com and whatnot. That's, I, we love partnering with those kinds of entities, you know? Yeah. So, so you touched on, you touched on it briefly. You mentioned that you've got over 3000 SKUs and it sounds like you've got a pretty good process for managing the data there, the pictures, the videos, and then also particularly with marketplaces, the textual data, the titles, the bullet points, your descriptions, every marketplace obviously has, I mean, we've built our entire business model around the fact that every marketplace has completely different requirements for what you as a seller should deliver to them. And it's not just about the technical connection of passing that data from A to B, but it's what that data actually is. How long can a title be? What attributes you're allowed to use? What what the valid values are for for this particular marketplace in this category, in this subcategory of products? And obviously these requirements are changing all the time. I know uh, we were talking very briefly before we pressed record. You You mentioned the topic of core data, and I'd love to hear your philosophy behind how you structure your product data in your business to sort of, to, to solve this problem? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, there's, there's essentially two models that I've seen with, and just talking to a lot of, uh, e-commerce wholesalers that are, are kind of very akin to, you know, our model of e-com, uh, wholesale, uh, and the same thing in direct to consumer or, or whatever, where. They have siloed teams that build out these, uh, listings essentially manually, or they have some kind of PIM and DAM, you know, product information management, digital asset management, uh, competency. So in our case, it's very funny because we, when we started this journey about 11 or 12 years ago at this point, uh, you know, we immediately saw this, this issue of you get the template from the marketplace. And in our case, you know, there may be dozens of templates because we're in more than one category. So we're called multi-category. So we don't just sell top of bed. We also sell rugs and we also sell kitchen textiles. So those are very different categories and sometimes very different category managers or buyers, but that also means multiple templates. So keeping up with all the templates immediately, we saw this is, this is a nightmare. Like, and so, but it's the business. So we decided, in fact, called it core data. We need a core place, like a place just for all our data. And that did start with Excel. And then we started ripping templates across and saying, well, at least let's put the template in here. So at least we see what are we trying to deal with? But we started with saying, well, 80% of this information is basically the same, you know? So let's have a core 
what we actually called core data and we 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 started developing this we even had a special server for back in the before cloud when like you know you had your own server for this and so we started doing that uh way back in the day and calling it core data and then we started researching okay we looked and we found channel advisor which has been in business for 20 plus years and that was like not useful because it's for big brands we're not that big uh, we're only wholesale, uh, and we can't afford that level of service or whatever, you know? Um, so then we started developing kind of our own deal. And then we've had some different, we've had some different models we've used, uh, similar to the offer you guys have, although they always update and certainly improve. And then we, then we, so we started with this separate siloed, but at least central repository that then we map against each template and then fill in the blanks on the templates. So. We actually started with a whole process internally of when we develop product, like literally on the product launch cycle, we literally added product information management as a core requirement of product launch. So that was, that was the first thing we did was say, Hey, this is, let's at least acknowledge this is as important as developing new product. It's not just, Oh, by the way, like let's actually start developing all of this product, all this information on the front end. Now we didn't realize at the time, this goes back 10 years plus, we didn't realize, okay, then you start optimizing for, you have to have six images, not just two, you know, you have to do so. So that whole thing has evolved over time to where nobody required video. And now it's, if you don't have video, you're, you know, you're in the dark ages. So you have to keep kind of updating it from there. I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but so we did that. And within our current a central system which handles sales order processing, warehouse optimization, and all that. There is a there is a a core data product information management function. So now we're living in that um, and doing it. But we we also use other app. We use other platforms where we kind of develop the data out before it rips across. Before before we publish it internally, we we we're using it and collecting it in another similar kind of like Excel on steroids, but not really. So we're, we're doing that. Actually it's in Smartsheet, And so, which is a cloud-based kind of thing. So we do that. And then we, once we vet and verify all the data and we clean it and we like it and we produce it. And sometimes that's third party. Sometimes that's in-house. Sometimes it's a combination of third party and in-house kind of depending SEO writers, videographers, photographers, uh, in-house teams, um, specialists that say, well, this is pretty close, but I have to tweak it for Wayfair. All that kind of thing is like, I feel like I'm going down a rabbit hole, didn't answer your question, but that's kind of the process, but it has a process. It is a rabbit hole, but it has every right to be a rabbit hole because the further down this road you go, the messier it becomes. And, you know, it's, it's small things like, do I need to for every single product, write a title for every single sales channel that I'm selling on, or can I somehow build a formula that constructs a title based on the requirements of this channel that extracts data from this core list of attributes that I've created during the product manufacturing process. And it doesn't matter then if I call it light blue, dark blue, azure blue, right. green blue, cobalt blue was the example you gave before. 
I can take that value and I can use it in multiple places. And I don't then have to recreate that every time. And it's it's amazing hearing you hearing you tell that story because you know, as I said, it's it's pretty much what we've built our business around here at eChameleon, where we do also focus on this single source of truth aspect, whereby a user of eChameleon, and I'm aware this is a very shameless self plug here, but I, I'd be remiss not to use the opportunity. A user of eChameleon will have in their single source of truth attributes which are relevant for their core business. And that doesn't matter if they're, what category they're selling in or what products they're selling. The idea there is that we enable a way that they can kind of go through and they can say, these are the 30 attributes, which it doesn't matter what sales channel I'm on. I need to have this information for my products, whether it's wholesale, whether it's B2B, whether it's Amazon, whether it's eBay, whether it's Walmart, whatever. I need to know that this t-shirt's blue. Right. Now, what then happens with that information after the fact and and where that goes and, and if it's converted with a lookup list or if it's translated into another language or if it's used in a title or a description or a bullet point or wherever, it all comes back to that core data, as you call it. And I think that's such an underappreciated and overlooked aspect of running an e-commerce business in, the, in, in 2023 and particularly for sellers who have begun their journey into e-commerce by uh, starting on Amazon and often what we will see and it's, and I have not yet found a suitable solution for this, but what often happens with these marketplace first businesses is, and you'll probably hate the idea of this, they will product by product over the years, add everything into seller central directly. They type it into seller central and they should send it off into the void. They get a nice shiny Amazon listing page. They'll optimize it. They'll tweak the titles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Five, 10 years later, they've now got an inventory of hundreds, maybe thousands of SKUs and they have no product data. And there's reports. You can get a category listings report from Amazon. Maybe you're lucky. Maybe half of what you put in there comes back out on the other side. The fitness data is just gone. And so then you maybe have to pay for a scraping service which will send some bots through and copy and paste everything off of the product detail pages. But it doesn't give you all the stuff that you put in in the back end. You lose all of your keywords. This is, this is valuable information that, that belongs to the company. You know, this is, this is your IP. Right. And it's I agree. gone. Yeah. Yeah. And what you're saying here is by having, whether it's in, it, can, it doesn't have to be in an e-chameleon or a channel advisor or anything else. It can just be a, an Excel sheet. Right. Uh, as an e-commerce business, there has to be some external data source of the product data that holds everything together. Yeah. And I, I think that's a great point, Jesse, because the other, the other thing I come across just in talking to people and touring their facilities and just networking in general, it, I find it fascinating where, you know, you'll have someone responsible for this marketplace, say Amazon and some or a team in a lot of scale businesses. There's a lot of people on them. And then there's a lot of people on say eBay, maybe to a smaller degree, people on Walmart, maybe to, a, but I find fascinating is that even within the same organization, those two people are not, like the, you know, it's like they go feral. It's very strange that you're talking about the same product and you guys don't even have the same data. Are you even comparing notes? Are you even talking about that? And, and these will be. Employees of the brands that say 
no, we don't want to go on marketplaces because it cheapens our brand and the community. We want to have consistent yes. messaging. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and, and that's a great point. That's such a great observation and so true. And, uh, and, and, and not only that, that's a conversation I've had with equity, with private equity investors too. Like, well, why would that's going to, that's going to damage your brand. Why would you be on those marketplaces at wholesale when they're in control and you're not in control? I'm just as much in control as, as you are on Amazon. I'm sorry. Um, I can run an event on Wayfair or turn an event off. I can change price. The other thing with PIM that, that PIM and DAM that's so basic, we're talking about the stuff that like, you've got to have a place for all the videos. You've got to have a place for all the images. You have to have a place in theory, you should have a place for all this stuff. That's a central repository library, but that's also to a pricing. Like, are you going to go through and change pricing on 25 marketplaces? I mean. How much easier is it to just say, I changed the price. And in our case, it's an API call. All the prices change in 10 minutes. I mean, why wouldn't you want that as a business function? It's ironic because you wouldn't run your, you wouldn't run your accounting that way. It's true. And the, the thing as well is that there's quick and dirty solutions to this, but in an ideal world, a, a nice, a best practice that I quite often talk about here is for one thing, marketplaces are often uh, can be seen as a marketing rather than a sales channel. So in, in an ideal world, a consumer would discover your product on the marketplace and then go, oh, that's nice. I wonder what else they've got. Go to your website, buy it where your margins are better. Fantastic. Right. You get the right. email address, you get your customer, yada, yada, yada. Um, in an ideal world, what you would be able to do is factor into your pricing on the marketplace is also things like the marketplace commission rate, any additional costs, any promotional costs that you've got for that marketplace. You can build all of this into your formula for your pricing. And then in the set, the price that you're actually displaying on the marketplace, obviously you still want to keep it competitive. So this is a fine line to right. thread, but right. your price on your marketplace might be something along the lines of cost price of product plus markup X plus marketplace commission rate plus shipping whatever else maybe comes in here rounded up to the nearest 49 or 99 cents there you go right. right and that's a very easy thing to do with you can do that in a very simple excel formula where as long as you have the marketplace commission rates for your category right and yet you don't and yet a lot of sellers will simply i don't know they'll they'll put it through a conversion tool, especially when you're selling in, in different currencies in, in Europe, this becomes a, a factor with UK sellers, British sellers expanding to Europe and vice versa. And they'll just run it through, you know, XE.com and get the latest exchange rate. And then you'll end up selling something for 14 euros, 83. And it looks like an eBay auction price. It doesn't look like right. a right. serious product for sale. Yeah, that's a great point. I think, and just, just dr double clicking there on the point about, you know, how do you because this is a big topic. How do you, how do you manage? There's two, there's two topics here. One is how do you manage pricing across multiple marketplaces and make any sense of it without de de depleting the value of the offer or the brand or whatever. Another, another really fundamental topic here that's, and this is, you know, I'm just, I'm sitting in on some of these conference calls and networking events with fellow e-commerce entrepreneurs at scale. And I'm talking, some of these guys are when I say scale, they're not a billion dollars, but they're 80, hundred million, you know, whatever. I mean, they're serious business in terms of owning a business privately. They, there's a very common thread. It's a drumbeat that's getting louder and louder that 
this whole business of converting people over from marketplace to your own URL because your margins are better, you're, you're asking for a suicide battle going forward. If you're not on marketplaces, when I say marketplace, people go, oh, code, you mean Amazon and Walmart? No, I don't. I do mean B2B. I do mean wholesale. I do mean get your act together and take Wayfair, Overstock, Home Depot, Lowe's, whoever, seriously, on down the road, fair, whoever. Like I do, that's what I mean, because the amount of scale of scale, if I can say it that way, is unprecedented. There have never been two retailers in the United States that their combined revenue is over a trillion dollars. That's just Walmart and Amazon. So the scale of scale has completely changed. Mm -hmm. How are you going to compete with your Shopify store? I'm not saying you don't have revenue. I'm not, I'm, I didn't say that. I didn't say you're non-existent, but how in the world are you expected to compete going for Now it, it used to be the good old days and you could do that. And when advertising wasn't as expensive, but we all know the truth that Amazon takes in $33 billion of ad revenue a year from the likes of us and everyone else. And they spend approximately 34 billion making sure they're top of search everywhere. So this huge carry trade in advertising at scale, or say you're Wayfair and you're not, you're taking that from a vendor discount, effectively from a wholesale seller, you're taking that in the form of a discount to my wholesale price, basically to fund that, but it's still a billion dollars plus a year, a billion and a half dollars a year. There's no way a Shopify store URL is going to compete with that. Now. You can with great SEO and great like long tail, which I love long tail. There's a whole conversation around long tail. I love it. Yes. And we do get revenue on our website and we do get, I'm really happy with it. But ultimately marketplaces are becoming the malls where you can't just have this little individual store. You got to be at the mall, whether that's B2B or B or D2C, you've got to be at the mall. The other thing I was going to point out is. It's not just the advertising and the scale and being, your voice is being crowded out. I mean, that to me, that's a huge point, but I think also the fact that people are comfortable with that. They don't, it doesn't, their user experience doesn't have to live around just your URL. It might be the best user experience. It might be the most hand in glove experience, but at what cost? And I think that's really what people are like. I, that's a conversation I hear more and more and more. I was going to make another point, but I forgot what it was. I, was like, I, have, I have one final point. Um, and then I think we should look at wrapping, wrapping uh, this up. I, we, before we press record, you mentioned the UK very briefly. And I wanted to ask you if and to what extent marketplaces or international markets in general outside of the US and North America uh, have played a role in your business, if any at all, or if they're planned for the future? Yeah, it, it historically very little. Um, and uh, we uh, that's not a function of, of thinking those are not valid versus what we do in the U.S. That was really a function of we started learning that if we really want to scale, we really have to adopt best practice across so many facets of our business, whether that's PIM and DAM and core data management and best practice, whether it's uh, advertising best practice or, you know, rapid shipping. We had to overhaul our warehouse completely from a, a former system to the current system. 
uh, to, you know, ship thousands of orders a day, but they all ship the same day, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, every order ships in batches within two to four hours, basically, unless it's like a $50,000 wholesale order. You know, I mean, that, that's hard to ship in four hours. I mean, you've got to manifest it and, you know, this, that, you know, weigh it. And you can't do that. You can do that in a couple of days, but you can't do it in two hours. So, you know, there was a lot of facets of the business that we wanted to address knowing that if we don't have a really sharp game with what we're doing, I think international is going to eat us up. Uh, so because shipping times are highly relevant, you, you're already adding four or five days, even if I shipped it within two hours. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we are growing in Canada organically. Um, but that's the only marketplace that we've really expanded internationally. And traditionally we've sold in Canada for over a dozen years in various ways, but so, yeah, I, I think, uh, Europe is an interesting animal from the standpoint of there's a, there's an edu a very educated buyer, a very, a very curated buyer and a buyer that's very tuned into a lot of specific details like Europeans are. I mean, they're, they're, that's the only place in the world where they'll have a serious argument about a cheese from this town, 30 miles away is very different than this cheese. Mm -hmm. We don't, I mean we don't fundamentally have those kind of conversations in the United States. I mean, it's very, we, we love one size fits all. Almost. I mean, it's almost ridiculous how different we are with not being nuanced and getting on board with the bigness of our standards. So Europe and stuff like that, I find very interesting. I think it's, I think it's, it's tricky from the standpoint of which marketplaces are the most relevant at scale and what otherwise is going to be a rabbit hole because it's the same problem in the U S you know, we've added marketplaces and the cost of onboarding the marketplace and everything just did, doesn't justify the volume you're going to get. Uh, so you have to not chase all these skinny rabbits. But I do think, you know, the number of consumers there and the overall level of GDP, obviously, you know, you, you can't ignore it in aggregate. It's, it's just the devil's in the details when it comes to Europe and the UK and how to do it. I mean, well, I think it's particularly in your category as well, because... The differences there there are huge differences in, for example, not just not just the localization, the actual. So there's obviously there's the language difference, there's the trans translation between English, French, German, Spanish, etc. Right. You then got the difference even just between British and American English. You know, is it a blanket? Is it a duvet? Is it a throw? Right. Is it a bed sheet, bedspread? No end of rabbit holes to go down there. There's also specifically in your category, a huge elephant in the room being sizes. The products that you would sell as a king or queen or single or whatever in, in the US simply don't apply in a lot of other countries. And it's very hard for a consumer, speaking now as, an, as a Brit living in Germany, where I also lived in Australia, Right, buying bed sheets for me is a is, is such a pain because I, I bought my duvet in Australia, I bought my pillows right. in the UK, my mattress in in Germany, and I can never buy anything. So everything's either too big or too small for my bed. And I can imagine as a seller coming into Europe, it's hard, first and foremost, to know how you can, you know, do you have to create a whole new product line to address these needs? But then also, how do you let the consumer know that you've thought about that and that they don't have to worry about it when perhaps they're already concerned that they might have to worry about it? And there's there's no end of uh, then logistics challenges in terms of you know local storage versus shipping from the U.S. as you said and, and legal and, and tax implications of doing yeah. so. 
it's 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 a bear it's it's really a bear i mean i think that uh and those are those are real issues that and 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 this is not just at the seller side those all these issues that are unique to europe sort of unique it's in terms of being very different than say us and canada or at least the united states the united states is 330 million people and it's a huge economy and it's very standardized so that's one thing sellers love about the us versus other. So then you have to figure out all those niches to your point. And that's even a problem at the production level, you know, in India or in China, because you're starting to, you know, how do you break that down? So, and so, and so, and once you break it down that far, you've, you've got issues across the production matrix of how do you, how, how do you effectively get that done? And it's, it's, it's not easy, uh, at all. And this, that's a common conversation I hear out of China and India you know, particularly India, because we have an office in India, it's very difficult to address the European market uh, as an aggregate because there is no market at aggregate. And that, that, that's a fundamental challenge. But if you can figure out the pieces and parts, it takes some heavy lifting, but you can get it done. I think going back, I I remember what I was going to say, jumping around, sorry, just real quick. And what I was going to say about the, the point you were making about the variability of pricing or pricing in the nuances of each market. Uh, for one thing, I would encourage anyone listening that looks at multi-market at wholesale or whatever, we, we actually got to the point of running and we still do this. We run a separate P and L per market. And we actually go back to that market and say, based on your chargebacks or based on your advertising expense or your marketing co-op fee, plus this, plus the rate of returns on, you know, look, we need to be here or we, we're going to have to think differently about how to pursue this relationship and partnership. And, and by and large, everyone's really open to those conversations. Uh, so that's one way we address it. We don't address, we don't change all the pricing for every single market per se. Now, the other thing is white labeling, and that's a big ticket item where I think the combination of white labeling, changing the combination of the product spec, and then, um, changing the price and working on long tail at the same time is a huge, it's huge. I know, that's all I can say. I know one company here locally, actually, and they're, they're much bigger than us. And, uh, it's a very interesting business. They actually only sell about 6,000 actual physical SKUs, but they sell about 36,000 virtual SKUs where they've combined the SKUs differently based on surge and based on things like that. So. So it's th- then they're able to completely differentiate per marketplace, which is so key because what, if, if someone really likes to shop X marketplace like Newegg or Best Buy, and they're just geeked out on that and they're, they don't, or Home Depot and they have a Home Depot credit card or a Wayfair credit card or whatever, maybe they still like Amazon at all. Maybe they hate Walmart. It just depends. They're going to find something totally unique on the marketplace they like. And it's not, it's not a price, it's not price gouging, it's price differentiation based on combinations and white labeling, which I find, you know, that to me is the next big frontier for us. Um, but I don't have an answer period for your point about sizes in Belgium might be totally different than UK and elsewhere. And then how do you even know how much to stock out? I mean, just to come back to your, that point, just maybe just to to wrap that up there, the question that. I asked uh, Valerie Dichtel, who here in Germany is a, an expert 
on marketplaces within the fashion industry. She helps really big German fashion brands get going on marketplaces like Zalando and About You. And I asked her the question of profitability and we were talking about profitability in a marketplace business. And I asked her, and I'm, I'm going to ask you as well, when you're looking at marketplaces from a, from, from your perspective now as an e-commerce business as a whole, do you look at the P and L of, or would you recommend that a seller should look at the profitability of each individual product on each marketplace and get really granular or should they look at marketplace business as a whole to ensure that the, the marketplace arm in general is profitable? Yeah, great question. I think it would be option two. And certainly in our case, that's how we look at it. It starts at the granular per SKU level, which you assume you've taken care of that on the front end, obviously when you're pricing it out. Um, but we, but there's products that have double the amount of returns of other products or whatever, you know, and that has to start factoring in at some point. But I would say at the level of the channel itself is where we we're really concerned about at the PL level is the channel performing? Is it delivering to the bottom line uh, in a meaningful way? Not just on the, the day to day, we sold product, here's our cost of goods, here's the sales, whatever, but, and here's the returns or here's this or here's that. It's also things like, was it relatively more expensive to implement the API call or was it really clean? Uh, or does the marketplace allow us to sell all 3,500 SKUs or are they high or they only want 200 SKUs, you know? So those, those are issues that we think about quite a bit is like, is there a market fit in terms of us as a wholesale seller relative to the marketplace? Because if you tell me you want to be so curated that you only want very small, a very small selection of product, do you, are you justifying that financially as the buyer or is that? Is it going to cost me the same amount of money to implement API and everything else? And yet you're only allowing 15% of the product to be there. So you have to have those kinds of conversations and really get into that. You know, right now it's kind of wild, wild west in the U S where, you know, these marketplaces are developing, they're adding the ad function on the closed marketplace because they want as the vendor to pay for that. And then they're really running breathlessly towards how much product can we add to have a viable marketplace at scale with any meaning to compete with, you know, there's 200 million listings over here and there's a hundred million over here. So, um, there's a little bit of a wild, wild West feel currently. I, I do think that'll settle down. Um, and I, and I think it'll get more and more niche possibly in the model of Europe where it gets much more hyper. I, one thing is I can't go in a big market as a shopper. Now just, just bear me out. I have Walmart plus membership and I have prime membership. And so packages are showing up all day, but I also, um, I, I also prefer a much more curated experience because there's so much noise on a marketplace that big, like Amazon, you're showing me so many things and so many ads and so much this and so much that that's not even what I asked for, you know? Let me go over to Wayfair or somewhere where it's, it's much more like a traditional retail experience where you actually are kind of listening. I feel like based on what I'm seeing, as opposed to, you know, you said red, but by the way, we have pink, we have magento, we have slight orange, red, we have boba, dude, I don't care. 
I'm trying to drill down here. So again, the end user, there's all kinds of end users that it's not just there's one marketplace and nothing else counts. You've got to account for the nuances of the, you know, a lot of these retailers adding marketplaces, they have a buyer they've been curating for decades in some cases. Um, and they, those buyers have nuances. It could be age bracket that's totally different. We're picking up a completely different buyer on jcpenny.com versus Amazon. A completely yeah, it different buyer. That it speaks a lot as well for the niche marketplaces. You know, your Chewy.com, your... Uh, yes. Here in Europe, you've got, there's, a, there's a huge number of sustainability-focused marketplaces where, you know, right. that kind of buyer doesn't want to buy on Amazon, not because they can't right. look there, but because of maybe ethical or moral reasons, they just don't want to shop on Amazon. And right. That's something that, again, you, you're seeing more and more and more of these channels popping up and there's technology becoming available. Um, you know, you've got Miracle, Spryker, Marketplace yes. that enable these big category players to become a marketplace. And that for them, for them is a very good way of solving this problem that this buyer that we took for a date earlier in our conversation would usually have of sourcing good products that are suitable for the product, they can now say, okay, you know what? We've already got the traffic. We're a big name. We've got, you know, we're known right. in this country, in this market for this type of products. And instead of us having to go out and find a hundred thousand products to grow our range for this number of buyers that we've got, let's just open the doors and let's just say, you know what? Anyone selling in these categories can offer their products and they can pay us some advertising money and they, you know, we'll, we'll keep 15% of anything that happens. And hey, presto, we're a marketplace. And that's a very interesting trajectory. And obviously, the B2B marketplace is another side of that. Um, but in, in particular, when you see these category-specific, these niche players, those open up new opportunities, as, as you've just described with Wayfair, because it's where the buyers are going specifically for that experience that is in line with who they are and what they're looking for. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think there's a bright future kind of to in this. I mean, you know, to me, although the issue of scale of scale, I mean, Walmart and Amazon have the money and, and they already have the scale and they continue to invest at scale to make sure that they have that level of market penetration, which is pretty amazing. But at the same time, if you're part of a tribe and you're a true believer and you're very niche, that's not always the best fit for you. Um, and, and there's some other reasons too. I mean, you know, you may not like the cost structure, but I guess the differentiation I would say here, Jesse would be in our particular case, and we've, this has been an hour long call, so it's been great, but in our particular case, we're not choosing to, um, to say, well, we're going to go, we're going to go all in with our own URL and try to really build that as some giant entity. It's much more logical to niche down to the, the curated closed loop marketplaces and really try to partner with them. So I guess if anyone takes anything from this podcast is that would be my level of encouragement if you're looking at B2B or looking at how to not be Amazon slash eBay slash Walmart or whatever, or you're looking for some incremental revenue, some of these might be shockingly incremental. They might not be incremental. I mean, so that that's kind of the really key takeaway. And, I, and I, this is something Walmart, the, the founder of Walmart, Sam Walton, you know, he had this philosophy way back before Walmart was the world's largest retailer, or at least in America, um, top five in the world, 
four of the top five e-commerce reta retailers in the world are now e-commerce, by the way. Um, so I find that very interesting. But the one that's not all e-commerce is Walmart. But Sam Walton, back before it was Walmart and huge, they were like, he was like, look, I just go to these little small towns that have no option and open a great store and everyone starts shopping there. Go where they're not was his philosophy. So I'm not going to go up against the biggest retailers in America frontally. I'm not going to go knock on the door frontally when I'm a 50 store chain or 300 store chain. I'm going to go where they're not. And eventually people started paying attention and going, oh my gosh, there's this store called Walmart. Now they're everywhere. And now they're kicking my butt. Yeah. They didn't start that way. They started where there was a market opportunity and not fierce competition. And I, I think that's where these marketplaces come in. And that's why I'm not, that's why I'm not a believer in it's Amazon or nothing. It's Amazon or Walmart or nothing. I just don't believe that because there's so many factors pointing to the fact that that's not the case. And they also have a vested interest in doing a great job. Like, I think that's the other key point here is the, they, they really want to maintain market share and grow market share. And you're, you're not talking about a billion dollar retailer here. You're talking about this is a $50 billion, $80 billion retailer that wants to scale a 10 to 15 to $20 billion e-com component. That's the story of Home Depot in the past three years. So you should pay attention to these things and you should have a PIM and DAM partner or some kind of functionality to get there because otherwise you're going to drive yourself crazy. So that would be my plug back to you. Oh, I appreciate it. I will take it. Um, look, that's, that's been such a uh, great conversation. It's, it's been really, really nice having you on and, and it's always good to talk to industry experts and service providers and stuff, but having somebody on the show who's actually in the trenches doing it on a daily basis. And it sounds like you're really in there, you know, you, you really get the marketplace out of the business and, and you know, it sounds like you've got a really good grip of what's actually happening on a day-to-day -day basis. One question I would love to ask, uh, just to finalize things here, or just, just to wrap things up here. Where do you go to keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening in marketplace, uh, with marketplaces? Yeah, it's a great question. I do have a really good team, by the way. Uh, so I definitely can't take credit for a lot of the operational excellence. Um, one thing I hammer into my team or try to is look, um, as far as management and workflow and SOP, one of the core values is we have time for you to tell me back as founder CEO, something I haven't thought about at all. So if you wait for me to ask all the questions and those are the questions you answer, you're not doing a very good job. So we have a feedback loop here where I, along with other staff members, but including me on a, every other week. I actually just go out and do pure market research and I go down rabbit holes. And sometimes these rabbit holes are completely ridiculous. And we look at things and we talk about things, but as a team, we all bring ideas to the table and we have a running list of potential marketplaces, potential partners that we talk about. We talk about the good, bad, the ugly. Um, and then we also uh, talk about operational excellence with regard to the current partners. So things, you know, who moved my cheese that, that happens all the time in the e-com with marketplaces. And you address this with, uh, on other podcasts that, you know, this issue that, well, that was, you know, it used to be 160 characters for the title. Now it's 130, 
you know, these things, they out of the blue on Tuesday afternoon and oh, by the way, and now there's 3000 listings that have a title that's too long or whatever. Mm -hmm. So you've got to have your nose to the grindstone on that and have people that are specifically responsible for those functions and don't expect the marketplace to hand spoon feed you on all this. They're not going to do it now, but you should have on boots on the ground, relationship oriented management. You should be able to pick up the phone and call your senior partner at Wayfair and say, tell me what's going on. You know, yep. that, that, that stickiness of traditional retail is every bit there in e-com like it is with traditional retail. So you should be having that feedback loop where you're doing that. I think that's kind of really key. And again, we this is another thread of just relationship we've been talking about, like relationship, relationship, relationship. That's going to bubble stuff up to you from their side or from your side that I think is can be really key. And some of the best conversations we've had is, you know, hey, we've gotten a phone call or an email. Hey, we had a great vendor for five years in product X. Turns out they went bankrupt. You guys interested? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. I think I'll be in that product or whatever. So just have that relationship, have an open dialogue relationship that's so key besides just listing management and product optimization and great shipping. Okay, Kenneth, let's let's call this one a day. I know you've got to shoot off, so I'm going to press stop. Thank you very much. Awesome. Appreciate it. Had a great time. Thanks for joining to listen to this episode. I know it was a long one, so I do appreciate you making it this far. You're either really into e-commerce and marketplaces or you're my mum. Hi, mum. If you've listened to my episode with Chloe Thomas, you'll know that her show, E-Commerce Master Plan, was an inspiration for me with starting Marketplace Jungle. It was on that podcast that I first came across Kevin. So if you enjoy this episode, you can also check out his episode with Chloe uh, from the link in the show notes. I'm excited to see where his new adventure takes him and have no doubt that He'll be on the show again in the future to tell us about what he learns from that venture. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.